On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everyone. I am very excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Catherine Wen. She is a recent graduate of Cornell's Policy Analysis and Management PhD program. She's currently a postdoc at Brown University School of Public Health. And starting in 2022, she'll be an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about the paper you recently wrote with some colleagues at Cornell. The title of the paper is Positive Health Externalities of Mandating Paid Sick Leave. The paper is forthcoming in JPAM, and it's co-authored with Stefan Pischler and Nicholas Zebarth, again, both at Cornell's Policy Analysis and Management Department. And the title of the paper, I think, is pretty descriptive. You're looking at the health externalities of a paid sick leave mandate, or I should say many paid sick leave mandates because they're implemented at the state level. And basically what you want to find out is, do these mandates change behaviors in a way that improves public health? And you're looking at public health in terms of flu transmission and mortality rates. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what you find and also sort of what were states doing in terms of the mandate that led to these public health benefits? Yes. So we exactly examined whether mandating employee access to paid sick leave reduces flu transmission and mortality. And we found that these state-level sick pay mandates reduce influenza-like illness rates by 0.53 cases per 100 patients per week. So relative to the baseline influenza-like illness rate or ILI rate of 1.9 confirmed cases per 100 patients per week, this represents about a 28% decrease as a result of sick pay mandates being implemented in 10 states during our study period, which was between 2010 and 2018. And just a quick definition, Influenza-like illnesses are defined as having a temperature of 100 degrees or 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more, and a cough and/or sore throat without any other known causes of illness other than the flu. And the reason that states were implementing these sick pay mandates, and also cities have sick pay mandates as well, is that the U.S. is one of two OECD countries that does not have universal access, paid sick leave systems. Well. Wow. I was surprised to read that in the paper. What are other OECD countries doing? What do their paid sick leave policies look like? Mm -hmm. So in general, these policies cover full-time and part-time workers. They cover permanent and temporary employees. And broadly, the objective of the policies in these other countries is to protect workers' income and jobs and their health when they're sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most other countries allow 5 to 15 days of sick pay, but there are some countries that allow anywhere between several weeks to months of paid sick leave. For example... In Germany, uh, their law allows employees to receive 100% of his or her wage for up to six weeks per sickness episode. Okay. And if the illness lasts 
longer than six weeks, then the employee receives 70% of their wage. Okay. And employees can receive up to 78 weeks of paid sick leave over three years for the same illness. But in contrast, in the U.S., while cities and states have passed sick pay mandates and some employee employers also offer their workers paid sick leave, there's no federal law mandating paid sick leave for all workers in all states. Okay, so in Germany and many of those other OECD countries, that's just the way it is. Yep. There's a, at the national level, there are rules and regulations and stipulations that employers must do this for their workers. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, the U.S. does have FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. I guess that's the closest we get to something like what Germany has, but, but that has a lot of limitations, right? What is the FMLA doing with regards to paid sick leave? Yeah, so I, th- I think you're right that that's the closest that we have to the other policies that other countries have. But the main difference, I think, is that FMLA only allows workers to take unpaid leave. And also, it only covers workers who worked uh, 1,250 hours in the last 12 months and in businesses with more than 50 employees. And so it doesn't cover everyone. As of 2012, I think an estimated 44% of private sector employees were not covered by FMLA. And so many workers aren't eligible for FMLA. And even if they are eligible, the federal law only guarantees unpaid sick leave or unpaid leave. Right. And being eligible for FMLA, again, like you said, requires that you have a work history at the current employer. And so people that are are changing jobs a lot are going to be even less likely to be covered. And so there's a, yeah. there's a socioeconomic dimension to who's covered and who's not. Yep, exactly. Like, yeah. And if someone's starting a new job, they wouldn't be eligible for FMLA until the second year of their job. Okay. But it's not even covering pay, right? So, so it's right, um, right. Yeah. on both dimensions, it is less beneficial to workers exactly. than a lot of these other policies. Okay, so... There's also no rule against doing it, right? And a lot of employers in the U.S. do voluntarily offer paid sick leave to their employees. Do we know anything about like which types of firms or which type of jobs do offer paid sick leave uh, voluntarily versus those who don't? We do. Um, and yeah, employers can definitely voluntarily offer paid sick leave. And in terms of jobs that typically offer paid sick leave in the finance and insurance industry, over 95% of workers have access to paid sick leave. But in contrast, in about a quarter of all employees in the U.S. don't have access to paid sick leave. In the food and accommodation industries, about half of employees don't have access to paid sick leave. And the majority of the workers in low-income and part-time and service sector jobs also don't have access to paid sick leave. So there are quite a bit of discrepancies in terms of access to paid sick leave across industries and socioeconomic status. Right. And so, I mean, I guess, so there's an argument that implementing a policy like this makes things more equal, levels the playing field, so to speak. And so that's one of many reasons to think about doing it. But what's the argument against having it? Or or why why doesn't the U.S. have a policy that looks more like Germany's, say? Is it about incentives or is it something else? Yeah, so I think opponents of paid sick leave might 
be concerned that offering this benefit and paying workers when they're not going to work means that the firm incurs some costs and so they might lower wages or offer less generous benefits in other areas. But there is research on the effect of these city-level and state-level sick pay mandates on employment and wage growth. My co-authors have a paper in the Journal of Human Resources where they look at the effects of these city and state-level mandates. They don't find that employment or wages were significantly affected by these mandates. And the second concern is that employers could reduce other non-mandated benefits that are of value to employees like vacations or paid parental leave or insurance coverage. But again, my co-authors have an NBR working paper with Catherine McLean at Temple, and they exactly look at the effects of the sick pay mandates on non-mandated fringe benefits, and they don't find any evidence that mandating sick pay reduces these other non-mandated benefits such as paid vacations or holidays or provide provision of group policies such as health and dental and disability insurance. So the obvious arguments against mandatory paid sick leave don't seem to bear out empirically. People aren't losing jobs or receiving lower wages or taking or having other benefits taken away. Exactly. Okay. And then on the other hand, though, firms might actually benefit from doing this. They might benefit in having fewer sick days by taking contagious workers out of the workplace. And they might have more efficient and productive workers coming into work, you know, when they're when they're ready to work. And I guess that's part of what your study is looking at, right, is are there spillover effects of taking those contagious workers out of the workplace? Is that how you think about this? Yeah. So one thing that we're interested in is whether access to sick pay reduces presenteeism, which is just a term for when workers go to work sick. And this practice has been documented. There was a study that finds 55% of workers without sick pay have reported going to work when they have a contagious disease, um, which can lead to exactly what you mentioned, such as working when they're sick and contagious and they're not at their optimal performance, and also potentially spreading the illness to their coworkers or customers or people who they pass to their commute during their commute, mm-hmm. um, which would mean more sick employees who are also less productive. Right. And then your second question was about spillover effects. So certainly people could be infecting their coworkers and customers. But one thing I want to point out is that paid sick leave could also be used to care for family members. So it's also possible that... Oh, okay. Yeah. So people, it's possible that people are using paid sick leave to care for sick children instead of sending the child to daycare or school where they could infect other children who pass Mm -hmm. it on to their parents. And so there's also this potential spillover and external benefit to so many other people besides the worker who who gains access to paid sick leave. Okay. Yeah, that's a really important point. And that is an aspect of the policy I, I wasn't aware of. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of, of these state-level mandates then. Obviously, if you yourself are sick, you can take a paid leave, but you can also use it to care for children or, or other dependents. Mm-hmm. So do you want to Give us a little um, broader description of like what what exactly does the typical state level policy look like and what does it cover and so on? Yeah, so they can be the policies can be used to cover your own illness or 
that of a family member or to seek medical care. So like it could also be used to go to the doctor to get a flu shot. And in general, these mandates allow employees to first accumulate and then they can use a credit of their sick days. And typically for each about 30 to 40 hours of work, workers earn one hour of paid sick leave that they can then use in the future. Okay. One example is Massachusetts, where all employees and firms with more than 10 employees earn one hour of paid sick leave for every 40 hours of work, and then they can earn up to 40 hours of paid leave per year, which can be used at any point during the year. And do they expire? Do the days that you accrue expire at some point, or can you save them until you need them? I think you're required to use them during the year. I can't remember if if states have a limit on how many hours roll over. Okay, so that's how the policies work. And again, it seems like there's potentially big benefits of being able to stay home when you when you yourself are sick, both because you might be contagious or you might be not the most effective worker while you're sick, and also you can use it to care for other family members and to measure these potential benefits, which is the real contribution and the real cool you know, result that you look at in your paper, you're going to estimate the causal effect of these state-level mandates on public health. We talked a little bit about already that you're looking at flu-like illnesses and symptoms. Can you say a little bit more about why the focus on the flu? How costly is a typical flu season? And you know, data-wise, why, why the focus on the flu? Yeah, that's a good question. We focus on the flu in part because, as you mentioned, it's costly. And also, there are just so many illnesses each year. In the U.S., the CDC estimated that for the 2018 to 19 flu season, there were 35.5 million flu-related illnesses, about half a million flu-related hospitalizations, and 34,000 flu or pneumonia-related deaths. And so in the U.S., the flu is quite costly. And it's not just costly in the U.S. The World Health Organization estimates that worldwide, there are three to five million severe flu cases, and the flu causes up to 650,000 respiratory deaths per year. So it's a lot. And while paid sick leave can be taken for any sickness-related reason, we looked at the flu because, for one, in part because it's an infectious respiratory illness that's passed from person to person. So if you're, someone's going to work when they're sick, it can be an important channel through which flu infections spread, as opposed to non-communicable diseases such as cardiovascular disease or cancers or chronic respiratory illnesses that aren't spreading between person to person. Right. And so, so in, in some sense... Would you say your paper is getting like a the lower bound of the effect because the effect is going to also affect the mandates are going to affect other health outcomes? Yeah, I think so. I, for example, in Ger- this is a different country, but in Germany, I think back pain is one of the most common reasons for taking paid sick leave. Okay, and so if people. If there's also people in the U.S. who experience back pain and they're going to work, you're likely not performing at your optimal performance if you are experiencing severe back pain. Sure. Or if you just need time off to go get a flu shot or some other treatment, you could also take paid sick leave. And so there might also be benefits in terms of seeking preventative care, but that's more of a speculation and not something we specifically were able to look at. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at the flu specifically, which is contagious, 
mm-hmm. and passes person to person. The back pain hopefully isn't spreading right, right. to coworkers, but it is another, you know, people with back pain or, or any chronic illness are going to benefit from the policy as well. Yes. Right. This reminds me, I was wondering, do any of these policies apply to mental health? Do you know? I don't know. I don't think there are regulations about what the leave can be taken for. So I suspect that it can be used for mental health reasons. And to my knowledge, employees are not required to submit documentation of the illness. Okay. I think it varies a little bit in Germany, using Germany as, as an example. Again, I think in the case of Germany, if your illness is going to last three days or longer, you are required to obtain a doctor's note. And But I don't think that's the case in the U.S. Okay. So most of these state policies in the U.S. don't require any sort of confirmation right. from a doctor. Okay. Not to my knowledge. Okay. So the data you use here, it's very rich and detailed data. It's weekly data at the state level. Where did you get this data? Is the data publicly available? Yes. So our data is publicly available. It's from the CDC, and the CDC has a tool called FluView, which reports various measures of flu activity by state, by week, for many years. And so anyone can go online and download the CDC data. Okay. And in this data, states report confirmed influenza-like illness cases and the number of outpatient visits to the CDC. And then the CDC publishes weekly influenza surveillance reports with these statistics. Okay. And and these are statistics for everybody in the state. Um, so there, the CDC is reporting the number of confirmed influenza-like illnesses among based on the number of outpatient visits and providers who are reporting okay. cases to the CDC. So it's it's not the universe. We don't have claims data claims data from payers where we would be able to document all cases. But we think that this capture is pretty a good measure of influenza-like cases documented in outpatient visits. So we might if someone shows up with the flu and they've waited till they're really sick and they're being admitted to the hospital, we wouldn't capture those types of severe flu cases. I see. But in terms of age and demographics, you are getting everybody who was an outpatient. We are. We aren't able to look at the data aren't available by certain demographic groups. But um, to our knowledge, the data does capture everyone who's going to see a specific provider in an outpatient setting, regardless of age or gender. Got it. So we're not, it's not like we're only looking at employed people or we're not only looking at people Right, right. Okay. So we're looking at everyone. So some, of course, some people may have already had access to paid sick leave. Some people might not be working. And so we're picking up other people besides those who were specifically benefiting from this policy. Right. And and again, though, that's, I mean, that's that's one of the goals of the study is to see, are there spillover effects on these, you know, on other people? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah, okay. Let's dive a little deeper into the results then. What do we find here? And you look at two things, right? You look at mortality, but you also look at at symptoms. Yeah. So we look at influenza-like cases and flu and pneumonia mortality. Okay. I I think I forgot to mention that we look at flu and pneumonia mortality rather than just flu alone because the data are coming from death certificates and 
influenza is rarely documented on death certificates. There are a couple of reasons. Um, one is that states aren't required to report influenza deaths among people who are over 18. Also, people typically pass away due to influenza-related complications rather than from the flu alone. And then also, influenza tests are most accurate within a week of onset of illness, and many people who die of the flu aren't tested for the flu or tested for the flu later. So that's the reason we're in the paper, we're looking at pneumonia and influenza mortality. Okay. And what do you find for the mortality effects? Yeah. So for the mortality effects, uh, we consistently find negative point estimates of about a 2% decrease in pneumonia and influenza mortality following the implementation of the state-level paid sick leave mandates, okay. but the estimates aren't statistically different from zero at conventional levels. Okay. And we think one potential explanation for this is that sick pay mandates primarily reduce working when sick, primarily among the working population, mm-hmm. and so it might reduce the flu and spread of the flu among the working population, but Pneumonia and influenza deaths are concentrated among older people with Uh the majority of flu-related deaths occurring among people who are over 65. And so we speculate that one reason that we're not seeing any significant effects on pneumonia and influenza deaths is because fewer older people are working and so they might not directly be impacted by the paid sick leave mandates. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I I think that makes a, a ton of sense. And again, that you know, that's not the outcome you'd necessarily expect to see the big effect in. I mean, the big effect, I would think, should be just in transmission of quote-unquote regular flu cases that generally don't lead to hospital hospitalizations or deaths. Yeah, and that's exactly what we find. Yep. In the first year following the mandate implementation, we find that influenza-like illness cases decrease by about 290 cases per 100,000 patients, which is about an 11% decrease. Okay. And then overall, for all weeks following implementation, so not just within the first year, influenza-like illness cases decrease by about 0.53 cases per 100 patients per week. And relative to the baseline influenza-like illness rate of 1.9 cases, Um, per 100 patients, this is a decrease of about 28%. And so if we scale this 0.53 case reduction to a million patients, our estimates would imply that on average, we find 5,300 fewer ILI cases per 1 million patients per week as a result of the sick pay mandates that were implemented in 10 states during our study period. That seems pretty big, right? That seems like a non-trivial effect. Yeah, and it it is a larger increase, um, but it's largely consistent with Stefan and Nicholas have another paper that looked at city-level sick pay mandates on using Google flu trends, and I think our estimates are consistent with that. And then we also find uh, more recently with Stefan and Nicholas, we have a paper in Health Affairs that looks at the impact of people gaining access to paid sick leave through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, specifically for COVID-related reasons. And our estimates are in line with the effects that we find looking at this other respiratory illness. 
Okay. For our listeners, we'll try to put links to these other papers up on the podcast website. And it is, it's always reassuring to see that the estimates in any study are consistent with similar uh, or related estimates in other settings or with other data sets. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to say that the effects were too big to be plausible. I was thinking more like, wow, a lot of people were going to work sick because they yeah. had no other choice, because they were they didn't want to lose their hours or their their pay or, you know, even their position, you know, in the firm or their status in the firm. So Yeah, exactly. This is really striking. And so people I think exactly what you're saying, people might not have FMLA, so they're not only not guaranteed the right to take unpaid sick leave, but even if they're if they don't if people aren't having access to paid sick leave, they're forced to choose between going to work when they're sick and potentially infecting coworkers and customers or not going to work and potentially losing their job if they don't have um, job security through FMLA or and not being able to pay bills or rent. Yeah, for sure. So it seems like these are meaningful, you know, large effects on the outcome we'd expect to see them on. They, they probably affect, um, you know, well, they, I'd say they, they almost certainly affect, you know, quality of life and, and efficiency uh, and morale in the workplace. So I think your, your study does a really good job of documenting the benefits of a paid sick leave mandate. My next question, though, is what about the cost side of this equation? Can we say anything about the, the cost benefit of a state? Like, what would a cost benefit analysis of a state level paid sick leave mandate look like? And I know we already talked a little bit about the obvious costs don't seem to show up in terms of job loss or taking away other benefits from workers. But what, if anything, can we say about how these benefits compare to the costs to the costs of this type of policy? That's a good question. And there is a paper, also the paper by Stefan and Nicholas and their co-author, Catherine McLean, where they do find that newly covered employees who have access to paid sick leave do take two additional sick days as a result of the sick pay mandates. Um, so it's certainly people are taking the benefit and it's a cost to employ employers. I think it's it's good if people are taking paid sick leave because they're sick and they're not infecting their customers and coworkers, but it's also possible that maybe some of them are taking it for non-sickness related reasons, but um, I don't think they are they can distinguish between between the two. So it it is a cost to the employers. But this two additional sick day estimate in their paper, they find that it translates to about 250,000 additional sick days per 1 million people in their paper. And in our paper, we use this information and we estimate that the two 2,500 additional sick days per 1 million people translates to a reduction of about 204 ILI cases per week, which would mean that roughly for every 10th additional sick day someone takes, it prevented one doctor-confirmed ILI case. So we haven't done the exact cost-benefit calculation in terms of how much this is costing the employers and sort of the value of an inverted an averted influenza-like illness and estimating the external benefits averting one illness, but I think it certainly could be done and would be interesting information to to have. Yeah, and and I guess the tricky part is how do you evaluate a missed illness mm-hmm. or something like that? Right. But yeah, but I mean, I'm sure if you put a, a reasonable value on it, this might well 
you know, look pretty good in terms of, of cost benefit. So we have this evidence that, that there are big benefits to public health of these paid sick leave mandates. But one thing we always worry about in policy analysis generally, and also um, on this podcast and, and in the JPAM articles, is the question of causality. And, you know, we've talked about We've we've implied that these are causal effects of the state level mandates, but of course there was no experiment here. Some states adopted them and some didn't. And so, how do we know that we are really getting the causal effect of the policy here, and not some other spurious result due to you know the timing or or the geography of the states that chose to adopt these mandates? Yeah, that that's a really good question and. We do a few things in the paper to ensure that we're estimating causal effects of the mandates. Um, One of the first things that we do is we assess pre-mandate flu activity for up to three years, which allows us to examine whether the laws were implemented in reaction to changes in influenza activity, but we don't find any evidence of increasing or decreasing flu activity before the implementation of the mandates. Another thing we do is that, as you mentioned, various state-level characteristics, such as a population structure or weather or health, might be possible determinants for the spread of disease. Okay. And to check whether we are estimating causal effects of the mandate specifically and not other policies or health conditions, we also run models that control for various state-level characteristics such as unemployment, um, the share of the state population with health insurance coverage, whether the state expanded Medicaid, the population share over 65, whether the state had a flu vaccination mandate for children, and precipitation levels, because these are all variables that we think could be predictors of flu infection spread. But we find very similar estimates when we control for all these factors compared to when we don't control for these variables. And then I guess one final thing that we do is we talked briefly earlier that some cities had also enacted paid sick leave before the state level mandates. And so in the paper, we also check whether our results are robust to assigning partial treated values based on the population living in these cities with state cities with sick pay mandates as a share of the state's population. If even if the state didn't have a state-level mandate or the state hadn't enacted the policy yet. And again, when we do this, our point estimates decrease slightly, which I think makes sense, but the decrease isn't statistically significant. Yeah, that's. I think that's pretty compelling because it's almost like you're getting a new control group within the state if, if a major mm-hmm. city in the state already had the policy. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I found this pretty compelling. And careful listeners will notice that this sounds a lot like some of the other difference in difference designs that that other podcasts uh, podcast guests have used, especially the Robin Cox's podcast about the effect of federal grants on crime outcomes, where she was similarly comparing different states that adopted or, or different jurisdictions that received the money at different times. So here. You're, you're comparing states that did and didn't uh, have the mandate before and after they actually had the mandate. So yeah, I think this is pretty compelling evidence that these benefits are real and pretty good evidence that, or a pretty good reason that other jurisdictions should consider implementing these policies. 
The other thing I was wondering about sort of methodologically was how much are you able to look at differential effects for different groups? And here, what I was thinking about is timing. I know the flu season varies across the year. So you're able to look at, at does the effect of the policy vary across the calendar year? We are able to look at whether the effects vary across the calendar year. Mm -hmm. We basically estimate these treatment effects by month of year to see how the effects vary from month to month. Okay. And for each month, we compare flu dynamics before and after the mandates were implemented. And so, for example, this means that we compare flu dynamics in January, for example, after state enacted the mandates to flu dynamics in the same state in January before the mandate was enacted. And then we compare this difference to differences in January flu dynamics for comparisons that didn't have these state-level sick pay mandates. And when we do this, we find that the treatment effects are largest during the flu season, so during January to April. We also find negative estimates in October and November, which is the beginning of the flu season when we're all getting our flu shot. And in contrast, from May to August, the estimated effects aren't statistically different from zero. And so we really don't see any effects of these state-level sick pay mandates on the flu during the end of the spring and the summer months, um, which we think makes sense since there aren't very many cases of the flu during the warmer months. Yeah. And, and I like that and I'll result in the summer because that's almost like giving yourself another control group. Mm -hmm. You're not seeing an effect where you shouldn't see one. And I think that just bolsters the credibility of your main results even more. And then the flu, the flu season, is that pretty consistent across the United States? Like the serious flu months? I think so. I think the peak of the flu season is roughly January to March, April. I think it does shift a little bit across the U.S., but one other thing that we try to do in the paper is that we also, even though the CDC data is at the state flu, uh, state week level, we can also aggregate the data at the state month level to sort of deal with some of this variation in how the flu might shift across the country. And largely, we see the exact same effects when we aggregate at the state month level. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting and important to show. But I guess, you know, somewhat, I guess, what we expected to see. The other thing I was wondering about, which we touched on at the beginning, is that the status quo before states adopted these policies was that it was, it was pretty voluntary and pretty much up to the firms whether or not they offered voluntary paid sick leave. And it is probably the case that better, quote unquote, better jobs are more likely to offer that paid sick leave. And then FMLA, you know, you have to have some seniority at your current firm to qualify for FMLA, even though it's not paid. And this uh, makes me think that the people that stand to benefit most from the mandatory paid sick leave policy are going to be relatively lower income workers and, and people in less stable jobs. And so can we, are you able to see, like, are there, are, are the effects bigger for the demographic groups or the socioeconomic groups that we would think might benefit the most from the policy? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Unfortunately, with the data we have, we weren't able to look at differences in effects specifically by demographic groups, though I, I do think it would be really interesting to know whether the effects 
specifically benefit workers in the industries that have lower rates of paid sick leave before the mandates or by part-time and full-time jobs or different service sectors. But unfortunately, our data on ILI cases and pneumonia and influenza mortality wasn't, wasn't available by different demographic groups. I see. So assuming that some of those that some demographic groups are going to benefit more and that some people already had access to paid sick leave, that's another reason that, that you're estimating what we might think of as a lower bound, right? And that the effect for, for the groups that didn't have paid sick leave or didn't qualify for FMLA, that their effects are going to be even bigger than what you see. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because the data we have, we can't distinguish who worked at a firm who already had sick leave. And so some of the cases we're picking up are certainly people who already had access to paid sick leave before the man, either paid sick leave or were able to take FMLA before the mandates. And so I think it's right to guess that the people, the effects would be even larger for those who didn't have access to sick leave before the mandates, if we were able to look at the effects specifically for that population. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's something for an enterprising researcher to look at someday if, if they ever find the data. Well, yeah. So, so thanks for, thanks for describing your research. I think you explained it quite well and quite clearly. It's, you know, my takeaway is that there seems to be real positive benefits of the paid sick leave mandate on public health. There's some some more things to find out about the cost side and so on, but it seems like the the public health effects are very real and and somewhat big. So as we wrap up, what should firms and the managers of firms take away from these results? Yes. So in addition to reducing labor market inequalities, I think our results provide a nice case study of how labor market policies can improve population health and reduce the spread of infectious diseases by incentivizing workers to call in sick instead of going to work when they're sick. I think, especially given the earlier findings in another paper where over 55% of workers are without sick pay coverage are saying that they go to work when they have a contagious illness. But yeah, so I think I, we think that these our paper provides pretty um, nice evidence that Allowing employees to take sick days could reduce the spread of illness and outbreaks within firms, which potentially can mean that workers are more productive when they're at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, you know, something that, that managers should seriously consider is, would you rather have a fully healthy person working, you know, nine out of 10 days or a sick person working at half capacity for the full 10 days? So, yeah, there's, I think there's definitely some food for thought for firms and and managers there. What about the policy side? What should state, and I know you said there's also some cities that have implemented these types of policies. What should state officials and mayors and local policymakers, what should they take away from the study? For In terms of state and city and local policymakers, I think we have, we provide fairly convincing evidence that paid sick leave can reduce the spread of infectious respiratory illnesses. And we think that 
our research shows that a relatively modest mandate that has the potential for bipartisan support can induce economic incentives that improve population health. And I think we saw this last year, unfortunately, with the COVID pandemic, the policy was at the federal level, but one of the first policy responses was the passage of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And this contained two weeks of emergency sick leave for COVID-related reasons and temporarily expanded paid sick leave to workers in states that did not have state-level paid sick leave. And this policy had potentially bi had bipartisan support, and so I think it could be encouraging for states and local policymakers who are interested in pursuing this at their at their local level. Yeah, for sure. And having um, a having a policy like this in place prior to the COVID pandemic uh, presumably would have would have slowed the spread initially, mm -hmm. because taking time off of work when you're sick would have been more normalized and. It seems like part of the, you know, part of the problem is that there's this ethic of sorts in the U.S. where, you know, you want to keep working and you don't want to, you don't want to lose your spot. And so there's this sort of perverse incentive to, to overwork and, and work when you're sick that, that the policy can sort of normalize away. Yeah. And I think one other thing I wanted to point out that in addition to these direct, quick, immediate benefits for workers, reduced Influenza-like activity specifically not only benefits the immediate population in terms of their health benefits for the sick worker and maybe his or her colleagues or customers or families, but there are also sort of long-term indirect benefits for the state potentially through avoided in utero infections among pregnant women. Okay. There's a bit of literature that shows that in utero exposure to the flu is associated with worse birth outcomes in terms of premature births and low birth weight babies and worth worse long-term labor market outcomes. And so policies that have the potential to reduce the flu and reduce in utero exposure to the flu can have implications for public programs such as Medicaid and others in the long run. Yeah, that's a really interesting point I, I hadn't thought about. And I think that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, another thing I guess is that cutting back on on flu cases also frees up medical personnel for other things, right? And, mm -hmm. and, it, and it lessens the load on hospitals and doctors and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of, lot of different ways to think about the, the spillover benefits of, of these types of policies. Is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to make sure that our listeners hear or a few final takeaway points that we should keep in mind as we think about this moving forward? Yeah. Our main takeaway is that Sick pay mandates, um, state and city level sick pay mandates seem to be effective in preventing the spread of infectious respiratory illnesses such as the flu. And also our, in our health affairs paper, we find that they also are associated with reductions in COVID-19, which is also an infectious respiratory illness. One thing I want to point out is that I think a limitation of our paper is that we don't actually know the underlying mechanisms of why influenza-like rates are decreasing. Uh, in the paper, we highlight three possible channels, which include um, an increase in flu vaccination because employees can now take time off from work to get health care, a decrease in coworker and customer infections, which we've talked about throughout the podcast. Um, and alternatively, the last channel could be that the effect operates through sick children since parents can now take off time from work um, to care for their child and their child's not going to school where they can infect other children. And 
we were able to test whether there were changes in flu vaccination and didn't find evidence that the mandates had impacts on flu vaccination rates, but we can't test the second and third channels. And so I think it'd be interesting for other researchers or future research to look at to try pin down the precise mechanisms of how infections are decreasing. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that would be useful to find out. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. Our guest today was Dr. Catherine Wen, a recent doctoral graduate of Cornell's Policy Analysis and Management PhD program and currently a postdoc at Brown and soon to be an assistant professor at Vanderbilt. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us about your paper. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's it for another episode of JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I am your host, Seth Gershenson from American University, signing off. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.